Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Loving the Spotlight. Loving the Spotlight. And as you think about a spotlight or being in the spotlight, pride often manifests itself through a desire to be the center of attention. Being the center of attention. Loving being in the spotlight. And it's illustrated effectively by the notion of being in the spotlight or taking center stage. When you think about what pride naturally manifests itself, how does it show itself? How does it play out in practical life? Pride plays out in practical life by wanting to be the center of attention, to be wanting to be in the spotlight, loving to be the focus of what's going on around you. See, common descriptions of this mentality the one that loves to be in the spotlight, are simply selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-focused. These are all words or descriptions that are based on the word self. Because to love the spotlight or to love being taking center stage, to be the center of attention, it all puts the finger, points the finger back at self. It takes self and our own inflated ego and view of self, all driven by pride, and it makes that the most important thing. This me first attitude comes naturally, though, is the problem. You think about that and you think, I can even see how something that is so focused on self, something that is so prideful, how that would be negative. But that me first attitude, it comes naturally. That's what the default is. Because that's what you're... That's what your flesh produces in your life. The flesh naturally says, me first. It puts self on the pedestal of life. That's the default. And you often see it openly displayed in the behavior of children. So if the flesh naturally elevates self, puts self on the spotlight, puts self first, displays that kind of a mentality that then shows itself practically in a lot of different ways, Ways You see that with children as maybe your most obvious example. And the reason being is that children haven't learned how to hide it yet. And so when self first or me first is displayed in children, it's front and center. The little boy, I'll give you an example. I was, I was at a little gathering once. And at that gathering, there was a little girl. And the little girl was playing with a ball. Let's say she and I were just there talking. And the little girl was having a lot of fun with that little ball. And a little boy that was near us, we just happened to be looking at him when he looked up and his eyes saw that ball. And we looked at each other and we watched him, little toddler. He wobbled himself over to where the little girl was and he ripped it from her hands and he said, mine. (laughs) Now, the problem is, that adults learn to disguise this mindset. At least with children, you know what you're getting. Adults realize that this kind of self-centered, self-absorbed, selfish, self-focused mentality and attitude and behavior is unattractive. They realize because they look at it in other people and they say, I don't want to be around that. But then wanting to be accepted, wanting to fit in, they feel like, well... And naturally, people aren't going to want to be like me, around me if I'm like that. So they learn to disguise it. And so it's not that all of a sudden adults have fixed that problem with having that natural tendency to putting self first when the flesh is driving and controlling and steering the bus. 
It's just that they become more manipulative about it, more sneaky about it. They disguise it better. And you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You can call it passive-aggressive behavior. You try to manipulate people into doing what you want by making it seem like they're the one who wants it. All of these mind games that adults engage in. But it's the same thing. It's the same root problem. That the flesh, by natural default, wants to be in the spotlight. You see, disguise does not mean eliminated. This mentality of this natural default to wanting to take center stage, it rears its ugly head very visibly at times. So even the best disguises don't eliminate it from observation. You can see it very obviously in certain circumstances. And John finishes his letter to Gaius of 3 John here. He finishes his letter by highlighting one such example in the life of a gentleman named Diotrephes. So if you haven't turned there, let's turn to 3 John. This is just as a factoid. This is the shortest book in the Bible. And so even as long-winded as I am, this is our third message in this book. And Lord willing, we're going to finish this letter here today. So we're going to dig in and pick up where we left off in verse 9. But just because it's so short, we might as well read it just so we feel like we're picking up the context as we come to verse 9 and hopefully take through the rest of the chapter. The elder, in reference to John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. There's our first mention of loving, a love response between a one believer, John, towards this other believer, Gaius. He then calls him beloved. To start the next verse, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. That's nice. John has this idea that I know that you're I've heard that you're thriving spiritually. I hope that you're also going to thriving physically. Then verse 3, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. What a testimony. Just as you walk in the truth, your manner of living is described by God's truth. It's, it's compatible with God's truth. It's in alignment with God's truth. It's being led by God's truth. And that's what he's known for. You think about what you could be known for. What a wonderful testimony, though, there it's describing Gaius there in verse 3. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. What greater joy could there be than to know that those you care about are being directed by, being led by, walking in God's truth? Verse 5, beloved, there we have it again. You do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. Another great statement of a testimony for Gaius. He does faithfully whatever he does for the brethren and strangers. So we talked about how he had a history, he had a reputation for caring for and providing for these traveling evangelists, missionaries, teachers, ministers, however you would want to characterize it, as they went from church to church, went from town to town, evangelizing, establishing churches, teaching. Uh, So he had a history or reputation for supporting those individuals, even though he hadn't previously known them until they came across his path. Now, they came back to their own local church and they gave a witness of his great love for fellow believers. 
Again, what a great thing to be known for, your love for fellow believers. Now, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner of worthy of God, you will do well, speaking of these people that had come to his town or come through his home that he had supported, that he had undertaken to provide for. Because, he says, why are they worthy of being supported? Because they went forth for his namesake. And I said that my take on that is that his namesake is in reference to proclaiming Jesus Christ. Taking nothing from the Gentiles. Why? Because Christians ought to support Christian outreach. And Gaius was doing that. Verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. It's a good habit or a good pattern to join in or become a part of the ministry team by supporting those that are proclaiming or are the spokesmen, if you will, for the truth. Now, everyone is to some extent. Everyone is intended to be in their own lives, but there are those that are vocationally proclaiming God's truth as a missionary or a minister or a teacher, and he's saying we ought to receive them in a supportive way that we can become their partners. In a sense, we're all in this together. And that's what, as I speak about the local church, and it's the way that the God has designed it for each member to have different giftedness, different talents, to have be blessed in different ways, have different resources even, have different time, have different amounts of talent, have different amounts of treasure in different ways so that when it all comes together, it's fit together in such a way that the body can thrive and be effective at proclaiming the mission. And the mission is to lift up Jesus Christ. God has designed that the mission would be accomplished most effectively corporately together as part of a local church. And so verse 9 says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, there we have it again, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. So in terms of volume here, we're going to seek to cover basically the back half of this letter here, but let's dig into verse 9. I wrote to the church, and this is where our emphasis is going to be this morning. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. See, John now turns to the problem at hand. There's a point to this letter. One of them is to praise Gaius. One of them is to encourage Gaius to continue supporting these traveling teachers. One of them is Demetrius. So he's effectively saying, I I want you to also provide for or undertake to care for Demetrius when he comes your way too. But then he talks about the problem that has stopped. Why is he having to write to Gaius in a somewhat individual capacity? instead of just writing to the church that's going to be in the area where Demetrius is going. Well, there's a roadblock in the way. There's a problem. And it's a problem that's wrapped up in a name. A person is causing the problems. And his name is Diotrephes. 
You see, John had attempted to communicate with a specific local church. That's where we have, I wrote to the church. But Diotrephes had responded negatively and blocked or undermined what was written. We don't know the exact details about how he did that or what exactly he did, but he got in the way. He prevented it from happening. Now, Diotrephes, this is the only time he is mentioned in the Bible. Perhaps he was an elder or a leader in that particular local church. What we know, without speculating, is that at a minimum, he was a very influential person in this church. We know that because he's preventing the outreach that John is seeking to have to this local church in its entirety. So John is having to effectively go around him by now writing to Gaius directly. And so all the ins and outs of how this was working or what was causing it specifically beyond what was causing it generally, which we'll get to here in a second, we don't know. We don't know the history between Diotrephes and John. We don't know the history between Diotrephes and Demetrius or Diotrephes and Gaius. These are individuals that were being told about a little bit of a problem that occurred here in this local church, but we're not giving a lot, a lot of the details. But we know that the primary issue is he does not receive us. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, now we'll skip the description of him because we're going to come back to that, does not receive us. So that's the issue. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who's in a position of influence, a position of leadership within this church, doesn't receive them. So what are we talking about when we say do not, does not receive us? Well, the word can mean to welcome, to accept, to acknowledge, or pay attention to. Most likely the idea here is Diotrephes refuses to acknowledge our authority or accept what we say. He refuses to acknowledge our authority or accept what we say. That's how the vast number of English translations have chosen to translate that. The idea is, though, he won't recognize what's being asked of him or he won't respond to what's being written to the local church. In fact, he's preventing it from even going to the whole local church, and we'll see that in a second. There's definitely a sense here that they're not even fully aware of what's going on because Diotrephes has gotten out and blocked it sort of in the front. Now, this next clause here that we skipped over, who loves to have the preeminence among them. That is the focus of loving the spotlight. Diotrephes loves the spotlight. That's the short version of it. This, is the, this clause provides the only explanation regarding what Diotrephes' motives are. We don't have any more detail than this. We know that this is the gen- general or generic problem that is interfering with this communication that John as an elder in the establishment of these local churches, having a concern for these local churches, having influenced these local churches in the past, the thing that's stopping him from having the impact he wants to have in the present is that Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence among them. There's almost a sense here of how can he have the preeminence if John has the respect of this congregation. So he wants to eliminate that by not allowing or receiving the the written communication from John to this local assembly out of fear that it would have an impact on them that would surpass his own. But when we think of this word preeminence, it's a fun word. It's only used twice in the Bible. But it's defined as to long for and seek to be ahead of others, to surpass all others. A wish or desire to be first is probably in the easiest way. So ESV translates this, he loves to put himself first. That's the problem. <laughs> you think about 
What is the problem in your Christian life? What is the problem in Diotrephes' Christian life? What is the problem whenever there's a problem when it comes to the things of faith and we're not responding, someone is not responding to God's direction, his plan, his purpose, his word, his will for their life? When that is occurring 100% of the time, this is effectively the issue. He loves to put himself first. Think about that. It's not other people that are your problem. It's me against me. It's you interfering and getting in your own way as you put the focus on yourself. Now, sometimes you think about that and you think, I'm not being proud. And perhaps you actually believe that. And at times when God's Spirit is undertaking to lead and direct in your thinking, you're, you're not being proud. Because his way of thinking is described by humility, sacrifice, selflessness. Think of the difference between selfishness and selflessness. One can only come and be produced by God's spirit because it's alien and foreign to the natural man. It's only the new nature that could produce in you selflessness in a, in a pure sense. So is that possible that you could be characterized by selflessness right as you sit here this morning? Yeah, if your eyes are on the Lord. And if his spirit is the one directing, if you're walking by means of his spirit, if you're being influenced by him, yes. But when you're not, absolutely not. Because even what seems like humility is actually pride in in disguise. Sometimes you say, the issue, the reason I'm not trusting the Lord is because my darn husband is getting in the way. You see, that's pride in disguise. Who's the focus there? You, you're focused on the horizontal. You're focused on how other people are impacting you. You're playing the blame game. But where's the focus? The focus there, even though you think it's on your husband and his meddling with your spiritual well-being, in fact, the focus is on you in the horizontal realm. Sometimes you say, what's getting in the way is that darn pastor of mine. Certainly you could do better. That's not the issue. The issue is, where is the focus there? The focus is on the horizontal. The focus is, again, on not taking responsibility for not lifting your gaze toward the one who can help, the one who can direct, the one who can undertake. And as you put your focus on people or circumstances or things or self, that's all pride because you're fixated on me first. You're focused on yourself. And when that's happening, you're not walking or living life as directed by God's Spirit, and thus your manner of living is not what God has planned or intended for you, and it's not helping you, it's not beneficial to you in time or eternity, and it's not bringing God the glory, which is the primary problem with that. And so you describe it, what's the best way to describe it? He loves to put himself first. And it's described with a present tense verb, meaning this is his present state of being, but it also can refer to, and I think probably it is what it's referring to here, a habitual action. It's not just at this moment in time that Diotrephes has tended to have a problem with wanting to put himself first. He tends to want to put himself first. Now just take a moment to look in the mirror for a second. Is this problem unique to Diotrephes? Loving the spotlight? Tending to put himself first? Why does God so 
often have to tell us to realign our thinking, reorient our thinking, turn our eyes back to the author and finisher of our faith, looking to eternal things, think on an eternal plane, focus on a heavenly realm, to see our citizenship as in heaven, to lay aside treasure and store up treasures in heaven, to not get caught up in the temporal. Why, why do we need to be reminded of that over and over and over and over and over again? Friends, because the natural tendency is to tend to be self-centered, to want to be first, just like Diotrephes. Diotrephes isn't the exception. He's the rule. It's only by God's grace and God's provision in your life and you getting your eyes on him that you could be the exception to the rule at any particular point in time. Though it's not guaranteed that you'll stay there unless you continue to come boldly to the throne of grace. You continue to look upward. You continue to gaze, turn your gaze to him. You continue to see yourself as needing him. You continue to have a perspective that says, without you I lose my way. I can do nothing without you. I am absolutely hopeless apart from you undertaking in my life to, prov- to direct me and to direct my steps, to illuminate my steps, to point me in a direction that can benefit you, can, sorry, can bring you glory and can benefit me in time. That would be what you have for me. The Christ life, a life of faith, a walk of faith. I think it's really easy to read verses like this and say that darn Diotrephes. What a weak Christian. I would, never, I would never be described like that. You see, the flesh naturally loves the spotlight. You have to remember that. If you don't remember what you're up against, if you don't recall the enemy that you're facing, the enemies, I should say, that you're facing, if you don't recall that one of them is the flesh, see, we have the world and Satan. Yeah, naturally, they're the enemies a system of thinking that's controlled by Satan, this world's system. Obviously, that's the enemy. It comes from its source in the father of all lies, the ultimate deceiver, Satan himself. It's not hard to see Satan as an enemy. He's diametrically opposed to everything that's right. He stands for everything that's wrong. But I think sometimes we forget that our greatest enemy perhaps is our flesh that has that natural default mentality of me first, and turn to Philippians 2.21. Let's look at a little bit about this. Just because I think if we're not reminded that this is where we go by default, we're not going to stay humble. We're not going to wake up saying, Lord, help me to keep my eyes on you. Work through me to make me into something that I'm not naturally. We start to believe that we actually have been fixed on a permanent basis and that we don't have this problem anymore. Philippians 2.21. Now, this is written about believers. Paul is talking about the context of wanting to have more ministry outreach, to want to be able to impact more people and to send people even to these different churches that have been established in his travels. But he's going to talk about the issue is that there's no one to send. Now, he's not saying there's no one to send amongst unbelievers. He's saying there's no one to send but Timothy amongst the believers, I don't have this huge pool of people that are just chomping at the bit to serve the Lord, that are just waking up each morning with a perspective that says, God, how do you want to use me today? Now, is that the mentality we should wake up with? 
what do you have for me today, Lord? What are you going to do in my life today, Lord? I know I'm not going to do it, but what are you going to do? What do you want to do in my life today? How do you want to use me? You know, and when we're looking to the Lord, when, we're, when we have the right focus here even as a local church, we'll have a church full of people like that. See, the ministry of the church is to remind people, encourage people, build up people, exhort people, help people to grow, to invest in people so that they can do God's work, called the work of the ministry. But the local church is trying to equip people, believers, who have the right mindset and the right attitude to do God's work. He put us here with a mission to shine his light brightly. That's what the work of the ministry is all about. And he said, I've given a lot of gifts and I brought a lot of people together into one place so that when the thinking is focused on him, there's a lot of willing hands. It's not the same people continuously doing 90% of the work. It's a body of people coming together and saying, yeah, I've never done that before, but show me how. Let me get in on that. No, life, it's not convenient, but I'm going to make time for it anyway. Yeah, my life is busy. I've got a lot of things pulling me in a lot of different directions, but the Lord has put it on my heart to want to help in this way or be involved in this thing. And that's why when, what I love about some of our ministry outreach is that couldn't be possible if the whole church didn't pull together. Things like the Christmas program that we got done with or uh, vacation Bible school or the Bible camps that we put on for young people. These are things that are super encouraging for me, even, even in this role, is to see us all come together just as brothers and sisters with our eyes, hopefully on the Lord, motivated by his great love, letting him work in us so that we can have a great impact on people. But here, I, got, I digress. I just wanted to tell you the context here, though, of Philippians 2.21. If you don't have a Bible, here it is. But the context is this is written about believers. He says, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. I gave you the context there because you could naturally say that's referring to unbelievers. No, it's referring to believers who aren't making themselves available in the sense that they're not having the right attitudes about serving the Lord. If they were, he wouldn't be saying this. There would be a plethora of people available who wanted to serve the Lord and wanted to be taught and wanted to go out and spread this message to others or impact the community around, around them. Now, contrast this attitude of seeking your own things, being focused on self, the default mentality of wanting to be in the spotlight, loving the spotlight. That's what I love about how the language here is written. Diotrephes loves the spotlight. He just doesn't, it doesn't say Diotrephes wants to be first. It says Diotrephes loves to be first, just like you and I by default. Now contrast this attitude with the only other use of this word in the New Testament. Turn to Colossians 1. Let's get some page turning. Colossians 1.18 is where we're going. Now remember, this word preeminence only used twice in the whole New Testament, and this other one is quite the contrast to this. Now, Colossians is possibly the most Christocentric book or letter in the New Testament, meaning that it puts all the spotlight on Jesus Christ, talks about how great he is, how wonderful he is, how awesome he is. And so in reference to Jesus Christ, we pick up in verse 18, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, 
the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, how many things? In all things, he may have the preeminence. And if you read that chapter, you would just see all of these different descriptions about how Jesus is above, he's superior to everything else. But the idea is that he should have the preeminence. Now, the natural default is, I want to be in the spotlight. The problem with Diotrephes was, he wanted to be in the spotlight. He loved it. He loved taking center stage. He loved putting self first. The natural default of the flesh of every man, woman, and child on planet Earth is is me first. Loving to be preeminent. Loving to be the most important thing. And the Bible cuts to the core here. I hope it cuts you to the core as you just see the only one who deserves to be first, to be preeminent, is Jesus Christ. I just find... It's amazing that God would choose to only use this word twice, once in regard or once in a description of what our natural default is and once as a description of what our thinking ought to be. You see, humility is what allows you to keep the spotlight on the proper object. We have 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You don't need to lift yourself up. God lifts you up in a sense that as he's working in and through you, he's being glorified by your life, not because of you, but because he's being allowed to have his way with you. And so in that sense, God is exalting or lifting you up and eventually he's going to make you like him. He's going to exalt you permanently in the sense that he'll glorify you so that you'll be free from the sin nature altogether. You'll have a completely glorified body in heaven with him. You'll be living with him for all of eternity. But the idea is that you need to, in the meantime, you need to humble yourself. As you humble yourself, it becomes less about me and more about him. Again, back to our song, that second song this morning. Save me from myself, Lord. Help me to keep my focus on you. Help me to be humble so that you can lift me up. James says the same basic thing, James 4.10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, what will the practical effect of having the right mindset be? So if it's humility that allows you to keep God as the proper object of the spotlight, but specifically Jesus Christ in the context of Colossians 1.18, so that your focus is on, I'm in Christ and he's in me. I'm a Christ one. I don't just tell people once in a while, I'm a Christian. I am described by a mentality that says, I'm one of Christ. I'm a child of the King. He's my very best friend. He's in me. His Spirit's in me. He wants to lead and direct me and empower me so that I can live a life that would bring Him glory, not because of me, but because of Him. Not because of what I can do, but because of what He can do in and through me. Now, what will the practical effect of having that right mindset be? Instead of putting self first, you're going to put Christ first. Instead of putting self first, you're going to have a concern for the interests and the well-being of others, which in this context is what John is talking about. He's saying, Gaius, I want you to continue with the mindset you've been having, where you've had this great love for the fellow believers so that you've been providing and undertaking to care for them based on a love response to what God has done for you and your love for them. 
In contrast to the attitude of Diotrephes, instead of caring for the fellow believers and providing for them, he has prevented them, he has prevented us, he's kept the spotlight on himself because that's the default. So the practical effect of having a mindset that's focused on Christ is that it will be focused on other people. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own. Remember what the default was? All seek their own instead of the things of Christ. Same author, 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own. But what's the alternative to that? Obviously think seeking the things of the Lord. But what's the practical description of that? Each other's well-being. Friends, I, I'm, not trying, I'm not overemphasizing how much God is concerned about us having a concern for each other. The way that God reveals his love through us, the way that God impacts our thinking and then works in our life as his spirit is working in us is to have love for one another. The Bible focuses on this over and over and over and over. Yes, God loves people. God made a way for people. But he also came up with a design such that his love could be manifest in people's lives through people. Now, it's not, it's not people's love. It's his love, but it's being manifest or demonstrated in people's lives through people. That's you and I. And so if we're not open vessels, open channels, willing instruments that God can work through, then that love isn't there. Not the way that God intended it to be there. Do you, do you like being cared for? Do you like being loved? Is it good? Is it a good feeling to know that somebody has taken an interest in you? I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions. But generally speaking, do you have too many friends? Do you have too many people who would actually drop what they're doing to help you? Do you have too many people that care more about your well-being than their own? Is there too much of that going on? The answer is obviously not. That's why God's saying, please get out of the way. Stop fighting me. Stop resisting me. Stop preventing me. Stop quenching me. That's what he's talking about in all these passages. Get your eyes on me so you can be an available instrument for me to work in your life and in the lives of others. So the question is, are you loving the spotlight? Does this attitude describe you? And the answer is, to some measure, yes. It does whenever you're distracted. Whenever we get our eyes off of him, this will describe us. Remember, it's the default. It does whenever you are deceived. It does whenever your flesh is directing. It does whenever pride gets in the way. This wouldn't just describe Diotrephes, it would describe you and I. That we love the spotlight. Let's get our eyes back on him. He's the one who deserves the spotlight. And when we have that perspective, then we're looking to him because we see how great he is and how small we are. And then he can work in us to bring about a different way of thinking and then a different manner of living. So our testimony could be like the testimony of Gaius 
instead of the testimony of Diotrephes. Now we keep moving. Verse 10, therefore, if I come, because he's had this attitude, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, love this word, pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Now this is a long verse, but it sort of speaks for itself, so we're going to kind of jump through it quickly. But if I come, most understand this to mean when I come. You see, this is the same word that is translated when in 1 John 2.28. It can be translated when. And so that in 1 John 2.28 it says, And now little children abide in him that when he appears. That's the same word, same Greek word, that when he appears. So most understand John to really be saying when I come instead of theoretically I might come. Thus John has every intention of confronting Diotrephes. It's more a statement of anticipation. He's anticipating when the day that he would travel to address this or to confront Diotrephes. Now, what's he say he's going to do when he does come? I will call to mind his deeds. Call to mind means call to attention. Now, exactly how John intends to do that is unclear. The language suggests that John is planning to confront Diotrephes and expose his conduct, probably publicly and probably before the whole church. I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. Now, can you be dogmatic about that? No, because it doesn't specifically say that. You'd have to infer that from the language that's written there. You see, Diotrephes' actions, they seem to not yet be fully known to the congregation. And so he's, in terms of having resisted what John is saying or having resisted the letter or the writing that John had, had sent, it doesn't, doesn't seem like everybody else knows about it. Certainly they know that he's not receiving the brethren because we'll get to that here next. Now there's three specific and proper actions that are highlighted here in Diotrephes' life. The first one is that he's, he's prating against us with malicious words. And the idea there is Diotrephes is talking nonsense or spreading false accusations about John and other believers with evil or hostile intent. That's what that word prating means. It means speaking nonsense or spreading false accusations. Now the malicious part, that's where you get the evil or hostile intent. He's doing this intentionally and he's doing it with hostile or evil motives. Why? Because some people take this perspective that comes naturally, that the only way I can lift myself up is to push other people down or tear other people down. When a person is always mean or is always sharp-tongued towards other, always tearing people down with words, always condescending and sarcastic in what they say about everything, it's just a symptom of the underlying issue, which is that they want to exalt themselves or lift themselves up. Usually they're miserable because that's not something a spirit-led life is doing. And so any life that's lived apart from God's spirit or apart from faith is a miserable life. So that miserable person is making everyone else miserable around them, but the idea is that I'll feel better about myself if I can make you feel worse about yourself. And that's effectively what Diotrephes is doing. By talking down about John, he's 
trying to lift himself up. Now, what's the second thing? He himself does not receive the brethren. That speaks for itself. Diotrephes is not personally offering any hospitality or provision for the traveling missionaries and teachers. So Gaius is being generous and hospitable, and Diotrephes is not personally doing that himself. But the last thing he's doing is he's forbidding those who wish to receive the brethren, putting them out of the church. So not only is he talking down or undermining John, he's not personally receiving or providing for or being hospitable to these traveling teachers and missionaries, but then he's forbidding anybody else from doing it too. Not only that is the way that he's forbidding or scaring them is he's saying, if you do this, I'm going to kick you out of the church. So back to how do we know that Diotrephes has a lot of influence in this church? Right there. That's how we know it. Now, does that mean he was a pastor, an elder? What role did he have? It doesn't say. But he had the capacity to bring about people being kicked out of the church. See, he hinders or prevents others from doing so by habitually forcing them out of the church if they do it. So then John's now going to contrast. So that's what Diotrephes is all about. By having focus on self, he naturally is wanting to keep the focus off of others. He's not wanting to have anyone else come in that might uh, be received well or take away from his sense of superiority or his sense of being in the spotlight. So he doesn't want other teachers coming in or missionaries coming in. He doesn't want to even provide for them as they're traveling through. Now, John has something to say in summary about that kind of a mindset. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So he's saying this is the description of behavior that is unacceptable. This isn't what you want to model yourself after, but he's specifically, again, using beloved to refer to Gaius for the fourth time. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So there we have it again, beloved. Now he's saying don't follow that pattern. Stick with the reputation and the testimony that you've become known for, which is to have a a great love for fellow believers. See, John now admonishes Gaius not to imitate what is evil, but instead to imitate what is good. This is the only imperative in this letter. So in terms of this is something that is critical to your spiritual well-being, there's a way to, you know, some would say that's a, a written as a a command. That's not really the focus of the imperative. The focus of an imperative is this is critical. This is critical to the desired outcome that you would heed this warning. Don't imitate what's evil, but keep imitating what is good, which is what he's already done. Now, I'm just going to spend a a moment on has not seen God. Uh, Some have taken varying views about this and and who this is in relation to. But when John talks about seeing God, he's not talking about experiencing a vision. He's talking about having a relationship with God that involves fellowship. First John brought this out over and over again. See, present fellowship cannot be experienced apart from responding to God's direction for your life. In a sense, what what word would you use to describe that? Responding to God's directive or direction for your life. Well, obedience. Now, how is that manifest in a practical way? Loving other believers. See First John about that. Over and over, he talks about one of the ways that being led or directed by the Spirit of God can be manifest in your life is by your love for the brethren. He says, you can't presently be enjoying fellowship with God, being led and directed by God's Spirit, if you're not loving each other because God is, by definition, love, and God's instruction through Christ to 
the disciples of the followers of Christ was to love each other like I have loved you. And so if you're not presently doing that, then you're not presently walking with your eyes fixed on the author and finisher of your faith. You're not presently being directed by God's Spirit working in and through you. Those things would be incompatible. And so that's been John's focus is on the relationship or the present fellowship with God. And so although this should be understood relationally as a principle, it could refer to either a non-believer or an out-of-fellowship disobedient Believer, when he's to say, has not seen God. The one who's presently operating with this mentality is not presently seeing God or being directed by God in that sense. It's also true, though, that that could describe the one who is pursuing or imitating what is evil instead of imitating what is good. That could also describe somebody who's never known God. Now, I don't believe he's saying that Diotrephes is an unbeliever. Now, it's not that critical to your understanding of this, but I don't think he's referring to this as a statement or a description that Diotrephes is unsaved. What he's questioning is Diotrephes' present walk with the Lord. He's not in fellowship now if he's operating with this self-centered, selfish, spotlight-seeking mentality. And the reason that I feel pretty comfortable in saying that I I think John is... taking a perspective that Diotrephes is saved is that he does not mention removing him from his leadership role in the church. When he says he's going to come here, he says that he's going to come and he's going to confront him, put to mind his deeds which he does, but it doesn't talk about coming and removing him from the church or removing him even from his position of leadership. The second thing is it's kind of doubtful that John would willingly leave an unbeliever in charge of a church that he had established or had had a very important role in its creation or its development to begin with. If John or any of the, let's say John, Peter, Paul, if any of them had established a church or were involved in it and came to find out that there was an unbeliever at the helm of the church who was undermining the outreach of the church and the growth of the church and the spiritual well-being of the church, do you think John would say, at some point I plan to come and I plan to confront him about these deeds that he's doing which are limited to talking bad about us and not receiving these traveling missionaries? So, in any event, I'm not going to spend any more time on that, but I think that's the focus of what John means here when he says, has not seen God. That Diotrephes is not presently while he's operating like this. He's not being directed by an intimate relationship with God and God's Spirit working in and through him. Now we move to verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So we'll speed up here, but John is now presenting a glowing endorsement for Demetrius. So if you're following the flow of the letter, Gaius has a reputation for having provided for and undertaken for missionaries that have gone out from a church that John is affiliated with because they came back to that church and they gave a good report about Gaius. And so John has exhorted him or praised him for that. He said, you do good to do that. Then he talked about, but there's been a problem though in your area with this guy named 
Diotrephes, who wants to be in the spotlight, so he's not doing what he should be doing. And so instead of the local church supporting these men, they had to receive hospitality and support from you individually because the church wouldn't do it due to this hindrance that was Diotrephes. Now he's saying there's another guy going to be coming, and his name is Demetrius, and he has a good testimony. And you should continue to have the perspective and the attitude that you've been having and support and be hospitable to him when he comes too. Now that's the paraphrase of what this is talking about here. See, Demetrius was probably one of these traveling missionaries. Although not stated very directly, this is really the purpose of the letter. John wants Gaius to receive and support Demetrius when the opportunity arises. And it's interesting that there's three witnesses to his good character that are identified. One is Demetrius had established a reputation among those who know him. It says from all. Then it says Demetrius taught and conducted himself in a manner consistent with revealed truth. So the truth itself stands as a witness for Demetrius in his his good attitude. And then John and those with him could also personally attest to his good character and sound teaching. Wouldn't it be nice if you were known in that way? All who knew him would vouch for him. The things that he said would vouch for him. The things that he taught would vouch for him. The way he carried himself would vouch for him. His sincerity, his authenticity in terms of wanting to serve the Lord, desiring to be led and directed by the Lord, wanting to proclaim God's truth, to others. Then we end with verses 13 and 14. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. So this first sentence, I had many things to write, but I didn't want to write with pen and ink. I hope to see you shortly and speak to you face to face. I just did a message on that that's nearly identical from Second John verse 12. And so just go to our website and you can see the message titled Face to Face. And what a blessing it is to be able to communicate with fellow believers face to face instead of having to communicate by letter. We have that opportunity this morning. Face to face fellowship with fellow believers. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But then the remainder of the, these two verses is a traditional farewell. So we have peace. Peace to you. And you think about that, peace is especially needed in light of this ongoing conflict. So, peace in the sense of God's peace, peace with God, but the peace of God, and also peace amongst other believers. And then you have sort of the believers wanting to extend their greetings, our friends greet you, and then John wanted Gaius to greet their mutual friends, and also probably likely share this letter, so he says, greet the friends by name. So we have loving the spotlight. And this phrase, it summarized the mentality of Diotrephes, but the thing I hope you're taking away this morning is that phrase can describe, it can and does describe you too. When you're not thinking straight, it can and does describe you. Loving the spotlight. Being the center of attention. Taking center stage. Me first. It's all about me. Selfish, self-centered, self-focused. All of those things will describe you too when you're not thinking straight. That's the default. Not the thinking or the reputation of Demetrius. Not the thinking or the reputation of Gaius. That's only something the Spirit of God can produce. The default is to be just like Diotrephes. 
But by the power of God's Spirit working in him, Demetrius, in them I should say, Demetrius and Gaius, they gain reputations for walking in and supporting the truth. And isn't that, instead of being known for loving the spotlight, wouldn't you want to be known for walking in and supporting the truth? And the answer is, by God's grace, you can. You can be known that way. But not when you try to produce it through your flesh. But when you allow the Spirit of God to produce it in you because you're keeping your focus on Him, you're maintaining that vertical orientation, then that could be true of you too, where you'd be known more for more, to be more like Gaius and Demetrius and not like the one who loved to be in the spotlight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we can spend together. Thank you for your great love. Thank you that you chose to love us so much that you would bankrupt heaven, that you would see us in our need, that we are hopeless and helpless and hellbound apart from you, doing something to fix our problem, which was that we were estranged from you as a result of the, tainted, the taint of sin the barrier of sin that had separated us from you and your holiness. But thank you that you broke down that wall or that barrier of sin by coming and taking our place, by paying the debt that was owed for sin, which was death, by dying a death you did not deserve so that we could live a life we do not deserve to live. Thank you that that was all accessed by faith alone, that we couldn't do anything to contribute to it. It was your grace alone. Thank you that the answer to our problem was fully dealt with by your sacrifice on Calvary. Pray that we would see how simple the gospel message is, that we would quit trusting in ourselves. We would quit trusting in anything we could do to make ourselves acceptable to you. We would quit trusting in our religious rituals. We'd quit trusting in the wrong things. But we'd put all of our eggs in the basket of putting our trust in you and what you have already done for us. Pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't understand that the gospel is just accepting by faith what you already provided through your death on our behalf, that they could see that. That in the quiet of their hearts and the quiet of their minds, right where they sit, they could say, I'm going to trust and put my confidence exclusively in you. And the moment that they do that, they will be born into your family, hope that they could see that they could never lose that salvation, that you'll never let them go, and one day they would go to be with you. Thank you for this time we could spend together. In Jesus' name, amen.